The Bible is a book full of unsolved mysteries. Are you looking to finally make sense of it all? Join our weekly conversation and think about the Bible like you never have before. Listen, watch, and interact with us at ChristianQuestions.com. You're listening to Christian Questions. Here's Rick and Jonathan. Susie Kassim once said, Truth searches for no one. It waits to be found. I'm Rick, and this is not your typical Christian commentary as we look at Bible-related topics from a different perspective. I'm Jonathan. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. Folks, we thank you for joining us today. Talk to us anytime with your feedback or questions at ChristianQuestions.com and all of our social media channels. Make sure to continue your Bible study after today's episode with our comprehensive CQ Rewind show notes, where we visually and contextually map out this episode's content, always available on our website and our Insider Weekly Newsletter as well. Plus, make sure to check out our YouTube channel for new videos every week featuring the CQ Kids series, our Moments That Matter series, CQ Bible 101, and much, much more at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. So, Jonathan, what's up? What are we talking about today? Well, Rick, our question is, does the Bible contradict itself? Part two. Our theme text is found in Romans chapter 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scripture, we might have hope. Okay, so you said... Does the Bible Contradict Itself, Part 2. Several weeks ago, we began a journey down what might be considered a tricky path as we took a first step toward addressing an enormous subject, perceived Bible contradictions. This is a huge undertaking, not only because of the Bible's very nature, being ancient and authored by several over many centuries, but because of the emotional reactions from the opposing sides as well. Many people in in groups have exposed, quote-unquote, what they have concluded are blatant contradictions within its pages and are not shy about advertising their findings. Just look online. There are those of us who do believe that the Bible is the inspired Word of God and are convinced that the Scriptures are sound and are harmonious. So coming up in today's podcast, the Bible makes no sense. At least that's what many people say. One big issue is what people say God wanted from his followers. Did he want them to sacrifice their children to him? In segments one and two, we look critically at Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac and Jephthah's promise to offer up as a burnt offering his grown daughter. Does God advocate killing children? The idea of human sacrifice brings us to the whole thou shalt not kill dilemma. God seems to say, don't kill each other except when I tell you to. Is this a classic contradiction? Find out in segment three. Then there's the issue of lying. God commands are, God's commands are not to lie, yet he seems to be good with people doing it. There is so much more to the story, and we reveal that in segment four. And finally, in segment five, we look at a second question about lying. Does God set people up? to lie? Does he feed lies to some so they won't see the truth? Some scriptures do seem to say this. Find out what they really mean. So Rick, part two of the task we're taking on is simple. 
address these reported contradictions one at a time in an effort to clear up what we believe are errant conclusions. Okay, so we're going to go through these, and these are tough. These are really difficult contradictions we're going to be going through today, folks, so we really do want you to, to stay with us. You know, in part one of this series a few weeks ago, Jonathan, it revealed several pointed causes for scriptures to be misunderstood. There were four basic different kinds of conclusions that lead to misunderstanding. Just let's quickly go through what they are. Sure. A copyist error, occasionally ancient scribes missed or misread letters resulting in skewed meetings. Now that happens periodically, occasionally, but but those things are there. What else? Different scriptures often reveal different parts of a story, always gathering all accounts to compare. And that's something that we're going to be coming back to today as we look at several things. What else? Clarity of context and an understanding of words within that context help find true meaning. Okay, you need to know what the words mean, and because it's ancient languages, that presents a challenge on the surface. What else? The Bible is to be understood in the context of ages and dispensations. God's dealings with humanity do change as he shows us the step-by-step pathway back to him. Okay, the Bible has a process involved in it. So all of these things, these four conclusions, were reasons that, that, that people just don't seem to look at to understand Scripture. So let's get right down to other supposed contradictions. So today's first challenging Scripture and their questionable meanings, um, and where, where are we going with this? Contradiction or needing a clear explanation, what's the point? Does God promote or accept human sacrifice? Okay, let's answer that right before we start, and the answer is no. No. Jeremiah 7, verses 30 to 31. For the sons of Judah have done that which is evil in my sight, declares the Lord. They have set their detestable things in the house which I called by my name to defile it. They have built the high places of Topheth, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, to burn their sons and their daughters in the fire, which I did not command, and I did and it did not come into my mind. And Rick, just to start off on that verse. Go ahead. This sacrifice of children is totally satanic, not godly. And God's heart really shows through when he says, it did not come into my mind. Now, I know this is going off subject real quick, but this scripture disproves the doctrine of souls being tormented forever in hellfire. Yeah. That false doctrine is clearly devilish in every way, a thousand times worse in theory than the innocent children being burned to death in this scripture. God is love and is merciful. And Rick, it hurts my heart when our Heavenly Father is being misrepresented. And, and mine as well. And, and you look at this and you say, well, how can you say that about God? Well, let's look at the scriptures that people point to and say, okay, that sounds nice, Jonathan, but what about this. Let's go to Genesis chapter 22, verses 1 and 2. Now it came about after these things that God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. He said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, Isaac, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I will tell you. Okay, so God says to Abraham, go sacrifice your son. And we just went through, you especially just said, God doesn't tell us to do that. That doesn't even come into his mind. And yet, that's what he says 
to Abraham. So what's the difference between the Jeremiah scripture and the situation with Abraham? Now, let's remember the awful heathen context of Abraham. Remember, Abraham came from an idolatrous background, was called away from that to follow after God. And child sacrifice was part of that idolatrous background, sacrificing to false gods, just like in the Jeremiah scripture. So that's that was the context of the world that Abraham actually lived in. So what do we do with this? We understand, to answer this, we have to put it in perspective. We need to understand what Abraham understood. And here's, here's what Abraham knew. He knew God. Abraham knew God. Abraham had experienced God's wisdom leading him from his father's house. Remember, he said he pulled him out of his father's house to a land that he would show him. So God's wisdom was bringing him someplace for a very specific reason. Abraham saw that unfold over time. Abraham understood God's justice when he rescued Lot and the kings of Sodom. And if you remember, they were saying to Abraham, here, take all the spoils. And Abraham says, I don't want anything. I just want a tenth of the spoils to be given to Melchizedek because it's is in honor of God delivering us. He understood God's justice being presented to him. Abraham experienced God's love when he was shown the promised land. You know, he was shown this land that he, you know, all he was doing was living his life in, in as pious a way as he could, and God showed him this. This is an expression of God's love. And Abraham experienced God's power when he was able to have a son under physically impossible circumstances. Yeah, Rick, Sarah was 90 and Abraham was 100 years old. Now, Abraham knew Isaac was the promised seed because of that miracle. He knew God kept his promises. He knew God had all power over life. Therefore, um, the apostle Paul tells us in Hebrews 11, uh, 17 to 19, by faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac And he who had received the promises was offering up his only begotten son. It was he to whom it was said, in Isaac, your descendants shall be called. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a type. So the interesting thing is what the Apostle Paul tells us in Hebrews is that Abraham knew that God had made him a promise. God had said to him specifically, Isaac will be the one through whom the nation will be born. So he knew that Isaac had to live. That's right. And so he knew that if he had to make this sacrifice, which incidentally God never would have had him do, but he had him set up to be willing to do whatever God said, if he had made that sacrifice, he knew God would bring him back. Why? Because God said, Isaac is the man through whom this nation will be born. So Abraham had such faith in a God that had already proven himself to be just, loving, wise, and powerful. And that's not like the idolatry that he was surrounded with. Those false gods could prove nothing because they weren't there. A beautiful test of faithfulness from this man, Abraham. And God already had the sacrifice waiting on the side. That, that goat ready right. to be used. Right. So obviously God didn't want him to truly kill the promise. So you say, well, why would God want to make such a dramatic statement if he didn't intend to do it? I think he did it for Abraham's sake. 
and really for the sake of all who follow. So, and and, and we'll, we'll we'll expand that as we go into our next segment. But what's the conclusion here? Abraham knew God had given them Isaac from a dead womb, and he knew he could deliver Isaac again from death. God knew Abraham's loyalty and used it to show the world his love. See, Abraham knew that Sarah could not have children, and yet God created a miracle so she could. He undid nature for the sake of Isaac being born. And he knew that, and he knew that that was sacred to God. So he didn't question God. And, and I think that we, we understand that Abraham had this loyalty because God had proven himself to him already many times, and Abraham was the right choice in terms of putting himself in position where God could actually use him. And there's more to this, as we'll get to in the next segment. So the whole point of the Isaac sacrifice thing was not to show killing, but rather to show the power of life. Abraham and Isaac are just one example. What about other apparent Old Testament child sacrifices? You know what's great about subscribing to Christian Questions on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. You receive a push notification reminder every time a new episode is published. Plus, it's a good thing to binge listen to several episodes in a row. Really easy playlist features. And you can auto-download new episodes to your phone every week. So subscribe today. Now let's pick up the pace for tonight's topic. We began the account of Abraham as it is not only the earliest challenged text in Scripture on the matter of human sacrifice, but it's also the most significant. God unequivocally showed that his plan would require his own son to be the lamb of sacrifice on a hill in Moriah, which was the same region Jerusalem would be built in centuries later. Well, Rick, that's an Excellent point. So you're saying that Abraham brought Isaac to that hill, a hill of Moriah, and Jesus was crucified on a hill of Moriah? Yes, because that's the, only only God. Yeah. Well, I <laughs> see, and, and, and he, the point is that God did made that dramatic example as one that would be continually looked back upon. And, you know, that's the first sense that we get of Jesus being the Lamb of God. We, we get that sense through, through this sacrifice uh, of, of Abraham being willing to sacrifice his son. God was not going to accept that human sacrifice. Now you can say, well, what about Jesus? He was sacrificed. We'll get to that, okay? We'll get to that. But uh, this is an important point to, to set up. And you're right, only God could mm. set up a lesson that would ring true thousands of years later. And we just don't realize, even realize the depth of what he's teaching us. So our next experience with dealing with human sacrifice is the story of Jephthah. And uh, we're going to have the story generally quickly explained uh, from a YouTube channel uh, called the, uh, the Atheist Experience. And, you know, it's on God doesn't accept human sacrifice. Oh, really? You know, now this is an atheist speaking, so he's not really kind about scripture, but he does, he, he presents these scriptures and, and you know what, at face value, they can look like they're a problem. But basically there's a, 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 a warrior, um, who prays to God and wants to win the battle. 
Jephtha. Jephtha. Yeah, look it up. Anyway, um, he promises that if God lets him win the battle, he'll sacrifice the first thing that comes out of his house when he gets back home. Well, the first thing he sees when he returns right. to his home. Uh, or right. Right. And, and, and it turns out saying. to be his daughter. Now, he lets her, you know, when he gets back, he lets her visit with her friends for a little while. I think it's two months. And then, of course, he sacrifices her to God because that's the deal he made. So if you believe that the Bible is accurate, we're talking about a God who knew in advance exactly what Jephthah was going to encounter when he got back home, being his daughter, because he's omniscient, and willingly accepted a human sacrifice in order to guarantee victory on the battlefield. Okay, so right. if you say that God doesn't accept human sacrifice, then right. you're contradicting the Bible. So okay, I don't know right. how to resolve right. that. You know, and the, and the guy he's talking to tries to argue with him, but gets really talked over and, and, and beaten down in this particular argument. So is that what really happened here? So the story of Jephthah, Judges 11, 29 through 40, we're not going to read the entire, um, all of the verses. Jephthah vows to God, as, as the, the gentleman said, uh, that if his enemies are delivered into his hand, he will offer up to God a special sacrifice. And here is, according to Scripture, how he framed it. Now we're not going to read all of the verses, but we're, we're keeping the pertinent parts Judges 11, let's do 30 and 31. Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will indeed give the sons of Ammon into my hand, then it shall be that whatever comes out of the doors of my house to meet me when I return in peace, it shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. So God does give him the victory, and his only child, his daughter, comes out of the door to meet him. She is, of course, destined to be this offering to God. Jephthah keeps his word to God. So the question is, what does that mean? Okay, because it sounds ominous, because he said he will offer it up as a burnt offering. You know, and you look at that and say, well, that's pretty specific, pretty clear language. And it is. Judges 11, now let's go to verses 36 to 40, and we'll take this in pieces. So she said to him, My father, you have given your word to the Lord to do to me as you have. She said to her father, Let this thing be done for me. Let me alone two months that I may go up to the mountains and weep because of my virginity, and I am my companions. Now, this is an interesting response, okay? Because, and I think in the response, if we pay attention to the scripture, because you remember the gentleman said, Well, you don't believe in the Bible. You know, he's taking a phrase. And he's building a conclusion around a phrase, which admittedly sounds pretty ominous. Offer it up as a burnt offering. I mean, like, what else could you mean? You know, how are you going to wiggle out of that one? Well, let's pay attention to the context. She wants to mourn her virginity. She doesn't talk about mourning life, but she says, I want to mourn my virginity. Meaning that her sacrifice was to always remain a virgin and never have a family. See, because Israel was commanded to never offer human sacrifice, and they were commanded, we've already established that, this offering was for her to be put directly in the service of God, which meant forfeiting children. And Rick, uh, having children was the crowning glory of the women of that day. Absolutely was. So we, you, you look at this and you can say, okay, so you're saying that offer it up as a burnt offering doesn't mean offer it up as a burnt offering, but she's talking about her virginity, and you're just simply saying offering it up as a burnt offering just means that she can't have children. That's kind of lame, okay? Stay with us, okay? We're not done, 
Okay, we're just actually beginning. Verses 38 to 40. Then he said, go. So he sent her away for two months, and she left with her companions and wept on the mountains because of her virginity. At the end of the two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow which he had made, and she had no relations with a man. Thus, it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went yearly to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah, the Gileadite, for four days in the year. Okay, so let's look at this, Jonathan. Let's look at, first of all, the order of events, because if you want to take the scriptures very specifically, let's do that, okay? You don't want to just say, and I will offer it up as a burnt offering, case closed, that's what it means. Hold on, okay? Look at how it's worded. At the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did to her according to the vow that he had made. So it says, okay, he fulfilled what he said. And then it says, and she had no relations with a man. Now, if it was stated in the opposite, she had no relations with a man and her father did, you could argue that, see, he killed her. But that's not what the verse is saying. It's saying her father did what he said he would do, and as a result, she had no relations with a man. You could say, well, it's because she was dead. No, it would have said she died. It's very specific that she was set aside for the, wor- for, the, for the worship and work of God. And that's why this custom in Israel was established. Not because she died, but she, but she was put into full-time service of God. And Rick, God knew who he wanted to walk out of that house because he saw value in this special woman that she could serve him and make a difference for him. So she was blessed to bless and honor him for the rest of her life. Yes. And let's go further. Let's deal with this offer up as a burnt offering thing. Okay. Here's the thing that we oh that always gets overlooked in this. So Jonathan, let's go back to that I and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. What's the phrase that Jephthah says before that? It shall be the Lord's and I will offer it up as a burnt offering. Whatever comes through the door shall be the Lord's. What can that mean? How can you say that, does that mean it has to be a sacrifice, it has to be death? And the answer is no. Thoroughly, absolutely no. How do we know? Because we go to the scriptures that tell us. Let's look at Numbers chapter 8, especially verses, it's really verses 14 through 17, but especially verses 16 and 17. This is about the tribe of Levi. And remember, the tribe of Levi was uh, was the group that was to do all of the sacrificial work for Israel. They were the ones with no inheritance of the land. They were treated differently than everybody else. Here's what God says about the tribe of Levi in verse 16. He says, for they are wholly given to me from among the sons of Israel. I have taken them for myself instead of every first issue of the womb, the firstborn of all the sons of Israel. So God is saying, I have this tribe of Levi to do all of this spiritual work instead of the firstborn. And why does he say that? In verse 17, he says, for every firstborn among the sons of Israel is mine. Now think about that. What did Jephthah say about this sacrifice? It shall be the Lord's. And she was his firstborn. And so what 
he's referring to is the fact that the firstborn were gods, and she was going into service to God as though becoming a Levite. So in the, in the verse it says, the firstborn is the son of Israel's mind among the men and among the animals. And on the day that I struck down the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I sanctified them to myself. So Jephthah is simply saying, I am giving my daughter to full-time service to God as though she is a Levite. That's what he's saying. That has nothing to do with human sacrifice. Nothing to do with human sacrifice. One more time. Nothing to do with human sacrifice. Further, let's just, let's just prove it one step even further. We have a scripture that shows us about a fragrance coming from a sacrifice. You know, in, in, you know, in, in the Old Testament, many times it would, you know, would talk about they offered up an animal sacrifice and it was a seat, sweet savor and the nostrils of God, right? Right, sure. Well, let's look at quote, unquote, human sacrifice as a sweet savor. Second Corinthians chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. We are living sacrifices, not being our lives being taken, but being offered, and it's a sweet fragrance to God. So look, if you want to make conclusions about Scripture, be willing to look at it in a big perspective, not just at a phrase and say, aha, there it is, we can condemn God for that. What's our conclusion? Reading the immediate and large context makes it plain that her sacrifice was to remain single and continually in the Lord's service. It's really simple to understand when you look at it in a bigger way. So what about the human sacrifice of Jesus himself? Surely we can't candy coat this. Jesus was sacrificed. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. By this, we will have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. So God, is God just mercilessly sacrificing Jesus here, Jonathan? Not at all, Rick. This is, this is Jesus' own choice. You know, and... and he, and it's completely different than the, the other examples, okay? How often, folks, listen carefully now, please, please. How often re, in our recent history have we looked upon someone who stood in the way and lost their lives so others could live? Don't we call them heroes? That's for sure, Rick. Okay, and let's prove that point. Kendrick Castillo, May, this, this year, young man, who got in the way at a school shooting and literally took a bullet so the shooter could be subdued and the young man died. Listen, listen to this really short piece of a newscast describing what he did. 
This is Tom Costello. Kendrick Castillo had told his parents if a shooter ever walked into his school, he would not hesitate to act. act. On Tuesday, he kept his word. He charged the shooter and immediately was on top of him, uh, complete disregard for his own safety. He was immediately there to respond. He was immediately on the shooter, and he was ready to end the threat. Brendan Biley rushed the shooter with Kendrick and another student, the latest young Americans to demonstrate uncommon heroism in the age of mass shootings. So you have this young man who even beforehand told his father, if it ever happened in my school, I'd go after the guy. What a hero. You know, and his father basically said, well, don't go, don't go, you know, being heroic. He meant it. No greater love than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. You know, what a hero. And, and that's what we call him, a hero. Well, newsflash, Jesus took the bullet for all of mankind. He took the bullet for all of mankind. Hebrews 10, 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come in the scroll of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. So, you know, he came to do the will of God. Now, was there coercion in Jesus' coming? Free will. He offered himself because he loved God's creation so much, and he loved humanity so much. He was willing to take the bullet, as you said, uh, for the world. So let's not confuse heroism with this idea of human sacrifice, okay? They're completely different. And please, if we're going to look at scriptures, let's keep things in the context in which they belong. God really does not want us to sacrifice children. He does want us to sacrifice our own wills to him. Outside of human sacrifice is the issue of killing. Does the Bible teach us that we should or should not kill? Did you know about all the video content we have? Go beyond the audio podcast with all our on-demand videos at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Discover our Moments That Matter series, the exclusive CQ Kids releases, and much more. See new videos every week. Subscribe, share, like, and give us your comments at ChristianQuestions.com slash YouTube. Now I'll throw the mic back to Rick and Jonathan. This is another large matter that requires a lot of attention and detail. For those who would tear down the Bible's credibility, a statement like this can be easily interpreted as, okay, here comes Rick with his excuses. Well, when in reality, it's a statement of wanting to find and understand truth. To get started with this section, we're going to look at one more human sacrifice issue that will actually help with the groundwork. So again, we're going to begin looking at killing. You know, how, how does all that work? And Rick, I know that you'd want the conclusion of the last segment really hammered home. And that is the Bible is based upon the will of God who gave humanity free will. Let us accept the outcome of man's free will. Yeah, it would help if we put the conclusion where it belonged, huh? <laughs> Thanks for the rescue, pal. <laughs> You're welcome, bud. Appreciate that very much. And see, that's such an important thing. Let's accept the outcome of man's free will and the, the sacrifice of Jesus, the heroism behind what he did. Let's not distort that. Let's let it be exactly what it is, a story of dramatic saving and inspiration. So moving forward, let's again deal with another item that some call, well, this is human sacrifice for sure. We're going to get into the context here. King David seems to be 
sacrificing the lives of seven men to appease the anger of the Gibeonites. So what are we talking about? Well, let's look at 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 5 and 6. So they said to the king, The man who consumed us and who planned to exterminate us from remaining within any border of Israel, let seven men from his sons be given to us, and we will hang them before the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. So the Gibeonites are talking to King David, and they're saying, we want seven men so we can kill them. And David said, sure. So you say, wait, 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 wait. What is going on? Now King Saul was no longer on the scene at that point. Right. King Saul is dead. Okay. So he said, they're asking for seven men from the sons of King Saul to come and uh, be be killed. And David says, sure, you can have them. Why would he do that? You, you know, you say, I can't think of a possible reason why King David would give up seven lives so other people can just kill them for, for sport. And, to and, the Gibeonites, right. the, the heathen. Yes. To the heathen. Yes. Okay, so wow. what's the story? And folks, that's the question. What is the story? So let's get to context an answer here, okay? So this isn't a matter of human sacrifice. It's a matter of ancient justice. Here's what happened. Israel had entered into a treaty with the Gibeonites back in Joshua's day. And you can find that in Joshua chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. Even though God had told them never to enter into treaties with others. They did anyway, right? Yes, they did anyway. So God, interestingly, expected them to keep those treaties even though he said not to do it. Right. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, you know, and it's the same principle with having kings. He said, I, you're not supposed to have a king. But if you're going to have a king, you're going to live by the rules of a king. So, again, it's you're going to live by the rules of the things that, that when you go astray, I'm going to make you suffer the consequences for those things. So they had this treaty. They weren't supposed to, and they did honor it until King Saul came around. He did not honor it. And we go back go to 2 Samuel chapter 21, um, Verse uh, verse 2. So we're going back a few verses. Now the Gibeonites were of the remnant of the Amorites, and the sons of Israel made a covenant with them. But Saul had sought to kill them in his zeal for the sons of Israel and Judah. So Saul is trying to wipe them out. He went against the treaty. Right. And God had basically said, you need to keep this. So he went against God's word and God's will in relation to this people. So here's the thing. And Jonathan, this is tough stuff here. The price of Old Testament justice was simple. What was it? A life for a life, right? Okay, it was very plain, very straightforward, very simple. God was hard with Israel. His law for them was justice, and his law for them was generationally based, so the sinfulness of sin would easily and often be revealed. And, and you know, Jonathan, let's let's pause there for a second, because... That's something that when people are looking in on the scriptures to try to find fault, they don't take those kinds of things into consideration. They don't look at it like, oh, wait, wait, you mean, so God's got this long, long, long range plan, and part of it is to allow things to go down a really bad road? And the answer is, yeah, yeah. So when things go down a bad road, don't blame God. Blame sin. Blame man's choices. But see what God has in store afterwards before you decide that, you know, you're going to write him off. 
They don't think about these kinds of things. So, <clears throat> so, so you've got a very hard price. And, and, you know, it's reflected in Numbers chapter 14, verse 18. The Lord is slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations. So you say, well, that's not fair. Why would you visit the iniquity of the fathers down through all these generations? Folks, that's the natural course of events. Okay? Take just a side example. I don't want to dwell on it, but take someone who is an alcoholic and raises their family in an alcoholic household. Don't tell me there's not a generational effect for that one person's actions. Absolutely, there I, is. I've seen it. I've seen it go through generations. And so that's the natural course of events. And when it says God visit, will visit it on them, he's saying, I'm going to make you see the depth of the consequences of sin. So when these seven sons or grandsons or whomever of Saul were handed over to be killed, it was part of the life for life that the Gibeonites were saying, you guys have a treaty with us and you violated it, you need to pay. And the interesting thing about the Gibeonites were they said to David, look, we don't want to do harm to your nation, we don't want to do harm to you, but it's Saul who did harm to us. Saul's dead. We are, ask, we, are, we are demanding, if you will, justice. And David let them have it. Cruel? Yes. Just in those days? Yes. Life for life. So even though this is hard, Jonathan, it wasn't human sacrifice. It was living accord in, in accordance with treaties and justice. So what, what, what's our conclusion here? God expects integrity for his people while allowing and directing the natural consequences of sin to have their full effect. This event was simply ancient justice being carried out. I don't like, I don't like it. It doesn't set well with me, but that's the way the world worked. And you can't get away from the fact that that's how it worked. And you had a treaty between peoples that was violated there had to be a consequence. What are you going to do with that? You're going to say, okay, that's the way it worked. It wasn't human sacrifice. It no, was, no. A, it was a, an international issue, if you will. So as we get now, we're going to switch gears to thou shalt not kill specifically. But before we do that, let's go to a, a soundbite from a, a YouTube video from Gorbix Lukavi. The God of the Bible is incompetent. He doesn't like the Bible. Okay, and he's going to make it very plain that he doesn't like the Bible. And what will also come out is that he doesn't seem to take the time to really understand the context of Scripture, as you will see here. Then something rather odd happens at Genesis 3.8 to 3.10. At this stage, Adam and Eve appreciate that they are naked and have made clothes from fig leaves. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam, and said unto him, Where art thou? And he said, I heard thy voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. I find this absolutely extraordinary. An omnipresent God can't find Adam, even though he knows he's somewhere in the Garden of Eden. 
So next time you're threatened that God is watching everything you do, just bear in mind that he seemed unable to find one person in a garden. Okay, so Jonathan, you have that you have that that illustration, you know, and and I'm I'm sad for that. I'm sad for that because what it it's a father to his child teaching him a lesson. Accountability. Yes. <laughs> and the question where where are you? It was because God knew he was trying to hide. God knew where to find him, but he also knew that to draw out the truth from Adam was the best way. Instead of saying, I see you, you're hiding from me, you sinned, he drew it from him. And he made him admit it. Right. I call that wisdom, not, oh, yeah. not incompetence. Amen. Okay, anyway. So, let's get down to the killing thing. Contradiction or needing a clearer explanation. Does God teach us to kill or not to kill? Jonathan, let's look at Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. Very short verse, first from the King James Version, and then from the New American Standard Bible. Thou shalt not kill, you shall not murder. Okay, so the word kill is replaced with the word murder. Is that significant? Yes, it is. And a lot of times Christians grab onto that and say, well, the word really means murder, so it's okay to kill, but it's not okay to murder. But you gotta, you got to expand it much further than that. You've you got to see it in, in the bigger picture. So let's look at Exodus chapter 24, I'm, uh, Leviticus tra- chapter 24, verses 17 through 22. This is the law and, uh, for, for Israel. If a man takes the life of any human being, he shall surely be put to death. The one who takes the life of an animal shall make it good life for a life. If a man injures his neighbor, just as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Just as he has injured a man, so it shall be inflicted on him. Thus, the one who kills an animal shall make it good, but the one who kills a man shall be put to death. There shall be one standard for you. It shall be for the stranger as well as the native, for I am the Lord your God. Okay. So what is the standard here? What's the standard? Thou shalt not murder. Okay. Follow God's law. That's the standard. Don't take a man's life arbitrarily because you want to, because it will cost you your own. That's the life. The penalties were severe and the penalties were equal. You take a man's life because you're mad at him or whatever the case may be, your life will be required. That was the standard. That's a simple standard. So, what about this? Okay? Don't kill within the community. That's what the law just said. Until God says to kill within the community. Because we're just saying that's, you know, within in, in Israel. And yet, there was a time when God was instructing some of Israel to kill others of Israel. And you think, okay, now how do you get out of that? He said, thou shalt not kill... And yet, he said, go kill them. Let's look at the context. This will be uh, Exodus 32, 25 to 27. And this is after uh, Israel in the wilderness uh, was, was taken, rescued from Egypt. And they had built the golden calf because Moses had gone up to the mountain for 40 days. And they're thinking, uh-oh, he must be dead. And then the people got out of hand. Exodus 32, 25 to 27. Now when Moses saw the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a a derision among their enemies, 
Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. All the sons of Levi gathered together to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put his sword upon his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. Boy, you know, God said, Don't kill within the community until I tell you to. It sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it? It does. So, Very. so the idolaters were slain. Okay. Here's the thing. Moses had returned. You know, and just a side note on the story that has nothing to do with the lesson, but I just was amused by it. You know, Moses comes down from the mountain, and Aaron has actually contributed to building of this golden calf. Remember? Yeah, his brother. Yeah, and and Aaron is a man of God. And he got he got he got pressed into action, you know, through the pressures, you know. And and Moses said, "How did this how, how did this calf get here?" And Aaron's response, I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but he says, "Well, the people gave me all their gold, and I put it in the fire, and this calf appeared out of the fire." <laughs> oh boy! <laughs> <laughs> Read it. It's 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 kind of amusing the way he describes it. But the the point of the story here is that. Israelites kill Israelites. Now, we have the law that was given before this. It says, thou shalt not kill. What's the difference here? Well, Moses had returned. Okay? They were rebelling, and now they see him. He's not dead like they said. He has returned. And they had an opportunity to repent because he said, stop what you're doing. Everyone who is going to be for the Lord, come here to me. So he created a natural divide. Those who wanted to rebel and be idolatrous stayed back. Those who wanted to be godly came to Moses. He gave them ample opportunity and to repent. They could have re- repented by coming to him. Any who didn't, they defied God and they died. So you say, well, why would they do that? Because, Jonathan, this was a matter in, in, in those times, and this was a matter of national security. It really was. It was a matter of this was a nation under God. This was a nation that not too long before this, very, 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 very short time, within a, two months, had been given the law by God, and they said, we will follow this. These people in that nation were, 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 were violating. They were treasonous in relation to God. And the penalty was death. And that's what happened. So God wasn't arbitrary. The opportunity to repent was there, but it was treason within the godly nation and had to be dealt with. So, so what's, what's our conclusion here? Well, Rick, thou shalt not kill is really about taking matters into one's own hands. In matters of national protection, things like war and treason, God saw fit to allow the rules of a sinful world affect how his chosen people would maintain their spiritual and national integrity. So what we're saying is when it came to spiritual and national integrity, the idea of thou shalt not kill was not part of it. Just like in times of war, we forego those rules in our own land. We have the same rule, thou shalt not kill. Okay, but when it comes time of war and you have enemies who are trying to overtake you and to take away your way of life, it's it becomes them or you. And look, face the fact. There's you can call it a double standard or you can call it person to person versus protecting the nation. 
God was protective of Israel. So we really want to understand that thou shalt not kill did stand in the Old Testament and the New, but the idea of war and, and, and times of war and treason and so forth had to be dealt with in another way. And Rick, taking things in your own hands means premeditated evil coming from within your heart. That it, it is, is a sin. Right, and it's entirely different than national security even in the times of Israel. The Old Testament was way was regarding, regarding vigilante justice is actually similar to our way now. Don't do it. So the Bible is simple. Don't kill. But what about lying? Isn't that more of a subjective challenge? There's a lot of talk program topics out there. If you're burnt out on Capitol Hill and Trump, don't worry. We never go there. But if you're looking for unique ways to look at the Bible, we'll make you think about how today's world ties into Scripture like you've never thought about before. Thanks for listening, and get ready for us to take a deeper dive right now. The same basic principle of not taking things into your own hands will apply here, though it's definitely harder to be clear on. Lying, telling half-truths, sarcasm. All of these things can be factors in this next conversation. So let's focus on the obvious issues of blatant lies and God's perspective. And, and Jonathan, so we're not going to get into the little half-truths half, half and things of, of, of life because there's something bigger here. Okay. And uh, the contradiction or needing a clear explanation would be, does God justify lying? And the answer is no. Now, should we tell lies? No. Let's take a look at three scriptures, three Old Testament scriptures that talk about lying in three slightly different ways and use actually three different words for lie or lying or lies. First is Exodus chapter 20, verse 16. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. Okay, false witness. Leviticus 19, 11 through, well, just verse 11. You shall not steal nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. Okay, so bear false witness and lie to one another. Those are two completely different words. And then in Proverbs six sixteen to 19. There are six things which the Lord hates, yes, seven, which are an abomination to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among brothers. Okay, so that word, a false witness who utters lies, is a third word for lying. So there's three basic words, Jonathan. And just, just quickly, what, what do they mean in, in generally? Well, to cheat, that is to be untrue, an untruthful by implication, a sham, a lie, untruthful, falsehood, deceptive thing. Okay, so all of them have the sense of cheating, a sham, or being deceptive, a falsehood. So, so you've got this, this dark sense. They, they want to hurt. Yes. Yeah. You're, you're, trying to, you're, you're trying to take somebody down a peg or hurt them or, or you know, take them by surprise or whatever it is. So you know, this is, there, there, there's a darkness here when it's talking about lying. So, so what we're not going to talk about is, okay, well, is it okay, Jonathan, if we want to throw a surprise party for you and we say or somebody says to you, well, Jonathan, uh, come over and we're just going to have uh, – you know, I just, I got to show you something, you know, or, or, or I just want you to pick something, or, you know, creates a story to get you to do something. We're not going to talk about that. That's not no. the issue. 
it's too small a little thing. So let's get into the sort of the, 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 the big point here. There are, and here's the thing. There are a lot of lies recorded in Scripture, especially in the Old Testament. Several of them are spoken by David or at his suggestion. It's important to note the distinction, and there is a distinction, between lying and the allowance for deception in the context of war and national spiritual integrity. And, you know, we touched on that with the previous example, and you've got to be careful with things like this. Because when you're dealing with a situation of war, deception is part of it. Look at what Gideon did. You know, he created this deception with the 300 men. And they were able to conquer many, many more than themselves because of the deception, which, in face it, in times of war, that's something, that's a tool that you use. Okay? This is a sinful world. God allows his people to operate in a sinful world. Okay? So we're going to get to the lying thing, and um, we're going to go... Let, Let's first go to another soundbite from uh, Gorbix Lukavi, okay? The God of the Bible is, is incompetent. You know, we heard his take on the story of Adam, uh, Adam and Eve. And um, now he's, he's going to be commenting on Lucifer and the universe. And again, you know, the thing that, the reason we're, we're using these examples is because there are thousands of them out there. And what they're doing is they're, is they're a representation of people looking at the Bible and just throwing darts to arbitrarily say, oh, look, this, bike, this book doesn't make any sense. Just check this part out. Well, look at this part. Look at this part. Folks, look at it in its entirety, and you see a different story. Let's listen. Finally, you would imagine that if God could get one thing right, it would be the creation of angels. But apparently not. He even messed up there when he created Lucifer. It really is a shabby record for an almighty and perfect being. There are other matters that make me think that God's perfect creation was far from perfect. Firstly, if he created the universe, what a shocking waste of space! The universe is billions of light years in diameter. He made all of that just to allow us to live on a small part of the crust of an average planet. <laughs> Uh, you know, I laugh because, you know, I was thinking of the last uh, program we did several months ago when we had David Stein with us talking about the universe and its complexity and its mathematical genius and the fact that the Earth is placed. It's not just an average planet. It's placed exactly in the place where life can grow and develop. And you see all of this incredible scientific uh, phenomena that says, what intelligence? And he's just saying, well, it's an awful big waste of space. It's just, it's, it's sad. And the thing about Lucifer, Jonathan, you and I were talking about this basic principle ahead of time. God didn't make a mistake in creating the angels, but what did he give them? He gave them free will. Yes. Just like he gave humankind free will. And that is important with God's intelligent creation. An eternal lesson. Yes. For, for us all. Yes. And so it's not a mistake. It's on purpose for a... A, a, a result that will be reported later down the road. And that's the thing you need to understand and see about these things. So, Jonathan, I just want to read a, a couple of lines from a response we got uh, from one of our CQ Kids videos on, Is It Ever Okay to Lie? This individual said, in quotes, Jesus never lied. Asking you shall, she's being sarcastic. Asking you shall receive. That's a lie, though, isn't it? 
And yes, Jesus said it. According to Jesus, you can move mountains by prayer alone. Give it a shot. If it works, post it on YouTube. And the person goes on and on and on and on. Okay, And you know the, the point is that people look at and pick statements that they don't understand, and out of a lack of understanding of context and meaning, draw a conclusion which just doesn't have enough facts behind it. And that's why we spend so much time dealing with these supposed contradictions, is to try to put the facts behind the story or the phrase so that you can say, oh, wait, I see now that I am able to look at the panoramic view that there's more to this. That's what we need to do with lying. Now, Rahab is a good example of lying. Rahab is the woman who hid the, the, the Jewish spies, you know, um, before the invasion of, of Jericho. And, you know, people say, well, God blessed Rahab because she lied when she hid them, and, you know, God saved her life. So God must bless lying. Well, I think that's a stretch, but let's look at the story, okay? Did God bless Rahab for lying? What's the answer? He did bless her. But he didn't bless her for lying. He blessed no, her for he, having... No, he blessed her for her faith. Yes. See, now there's a difference, okay? She did lie, no question, okay? And, and so her story is found in Joshua chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. And again, we'll just take pieces of the story. Rahab was not of Israel, and therefore her background was not founded in the principles of God's law. Got to remember that as we start the story. She was heathen, okay? Rahab's occupation was one that was shrouded in darkness, gray areas, and half-truths. That's what she was used to, okay? So we're dropping in on the story of Rahab and the, the, the Jewish spies that are spying out the land. So we're going to pick up with verse 4. But the woman had taken the two men and hid them, and she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. So she's being questioned. Were there spies that came into the land? Did you see anybody? She says, yes, I did. I didn't know where they were from. And you could say, well, you know, maybe she didn't know exactly where they were from. And you can say, well, okay, maybe that, that was, you, you can rationalize that. Maybe that wasn't quite a lie. Um, just wasn't the complete truth. But what about what comes next? Because now she is obviously going to be protecting those spies. Verse 5. It came about when it was time to shut the gate at dark that the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will overtake them. So there is the classic deception. They went that away. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You know, and this certainly fulfills the definition of a lie. But where does it stand relating to what God hates? God hates a lying tongue and uttering lies as a witness uh, to hurt others. Rahab's intentions, Jonathan, what, what were they? Well, they were to protect the strangers from captive. Right. She's protecting them. Why would she protect those strangers? Well, she comes to them because she had hid them. Okay, so she comes to them and said, okay, I got them off your trail. Now you need to get out of here. But here's what she says to them in verse, uh, verses, not, verse 9, and then we're going to just jump to uh, verse 11. And she said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the terror of his fault has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land have melted away before you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven and above and on earth beneath. So Rahab knew of God. Her people knew of God and knew how he was protecting that nation that was coming their way. 
And he knew that his, the, the, he, she knew of the deliverance of Israel, and she believed in God based on her very limited observations and experience. And, and she and the people feared him based on these mir- miracles for Israel. So she said, I know that he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. I know this. I've watched it, and I, this is what I've seen. So she is hiding them because she respects them as they are representatives of the God. And in verse 12, here's what she says. Now, therefore, please swear to me by the Lord, since I have dealt kindly with you, that you also will deal kindly with my father's household and give me a pledge of truth. So what she's asking for is to be remembered. Look, I saved you. They, they were looking for you and I hid you. Please protect me. There's, that's, there's some great legitimacy there, legitimacy there, because, you know, she believed in God and saw them as his representatives, and she was doing what she thought she should. Well, obviously, if the spies came in to spy out the land and God wanted to go wherever he wanted his people to go, they would go. Mm-hmm. She knew the handwriting was on the wall. Yes. yes. They were coming to, to, to occupy that land. Right. So save me and my family. I've been good to you. And I believe that you, your, your people will overcome us. I know what God has done for you. I have seen it, and she confessed it. Now, you know, so, so you say, okay, did she lie? Yes, she did. Now, you can say she didn't have the same background as Israel. This is true. It also is a, a situation of, of hiding somebody. So you say, okay, but did God bless her because she lied? And the answer is no. And we know that he didn't bless her because she lied because, again, in Hebrews 11.31, it tells us specifically what she was blessed for. By faith, Rahab the harlot did not perish along with those who were disobedient after she had welcomed the spies in peace. So she had welcomed them, and it says, by faith, she did not perish. It doesn't say she did not perish because she lied. It says it was by faith. She was honored for her faith, not her lies. And, you know, Jonathan, the point of this is we're imperfect. We are. And God can use us anyway. <laughs> Isn't that a relief? Oh, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, you know, when you look at the idea here, God is not saying, yes, you should lie to get ahead, but he's acknowledging that sometimes we do things that we shouldn't necessarily do, but he will bless us in spite of that because our heart is good. Now, look, do not, do not take this as a as permission. Hey, Rick and Jonathan said it's okay to lie. No, no. No, 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 not even remotely close. What we said is it's okay to do the best you can, and when you fall, to ask forgiveness and get up and try again. That's what we said. So what's our conclusion here? God can and will bless and use imperfect people based upon what they know and what they're capable of. This is a very welcoming biblical principle. Okay, it is a welcoming principle to know that God will use us in spite of our imperfections, in spite of our own personal arrogance sometimes, in spite of our own poorly chosen words and errant thoughts. He will still use us because we're trying hard. It doesn't justify the wrong. What it does is it focuses on the grace that helps to make us right. It seems like those of us who want to judge God always overlook the imperfect human reaction factor. It is obvious that we shouldn't lie, especially as Christians. What about God? Can he lie and deceive? 
Talk to us during our live Monday night podcast from 8 to 9.30 every week. If you're listening through our app, just hit the message button. If you're on ChristianQuestions.com, click on chat at the bottom of your screen. As our discussion continues, it is inevitable when we start to answer questions that more questions appear. Let's see how this expands. You know, to put ourselves in a position to judge God is at the very least tricky. What we can do is look at the scriptures to determine how the verses that are called into question actually fit into what we know of his omnipotent character. This is an exercise worth doing and should be a basis for all Bible discussion. So, Jonathan, what we're saying here is that sometimes you come across scripture, you say, how does that fit? And you've got to be able to see the bigger picture of Scripture and say, okay, in the context of the bigger picture, we can conclude A versus B because, rather than saying, well, that doesn't make sense, aha, the Bible contradicts itself. Let's, it's, the Word of God is too big, too strong, too powerful, too wise, and too full of truth for it to be doing that in such a, a, um, a, a random way. Well, the big question, does God make people lie? Okay, now see, we talked about lying on ourselves, but how about God making people lie? Aha, is that what he does? Well, let's look at the account, and this is not a well-known account, but again, this was in some of those lists of potential contradictions about lying, and we thought we'd you know put it on the table. The account of Ahab, King Ahab from the time of Elijah, and Micaiah, who is a true prophet of God. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 3. There's a, the, okay, I'm just sorry. before you go, no, that's no, okay. Um, you know, Ahab, um, Ahab was not a good guy, okay? Oh, yeah. He, he's yeah. always looking to, to take what's not his. And now, now start with the verse. Now the king of Israel said to his servants, Do you know the Ramoth Gilead belongs to us, and we are still doing nothing to take it out of the hand of the king of Aram? So King Ahab wants to invade Ramoth, okay? So he seeks his prophets to tell him if he should. He says, and look, Ahab was notorious for wanting to take that which was not his. So he, he brings his, quote, prophets together and to tell him, okay, yeah, this is what I want to do. Should I do it? Is God going to bless me? And, and Jonathan, this is really a sham because he was not a godly man, okay? No. But because they are not godly, all of these prophets, I think there were 40 of them at this point, they said, yes, God will bless you. As a matter of fact, some of them do this little act to say, here's how you're going to gore them, and on and on and on. I mean, they really get go overboard with, oh, yes, we can, we're getting these visions, these heavenly visions, if you will, and showing that this is the good thing. So Ahab says Jehoshaphat, uh, he, Jehoshaphat, the king of the two tribes, says, you know, they're talking about getting a second opinion on what to do here. So 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 8, because all of the prophets agreed. So looking for this other opinion. The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man whom, whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. He's basically saying, Don't say that you hate him. But but this is see this is Ahab, this is Ahab. This is who he is. You know I hate him because he never says what I want him to. 
<laughs> that's what he's saying. Oh, uh, he's not a yes man. Yes, that's correct. He's, <laughs> he's a, a no god. Man. <laughs> he's a god man, and you know he's a godly man, as we should say. Being a godly man, he's not just going to go along for the ride. So what they do is they're going to bring Micaiah before them, and his initial response is going to be sarcastic. And basically saying, sure, you know, it's going to go well and everything will be great. And we're going to read that in 1 Kings chapter 22, verses 15 and 16. When he came to the king, the king said to him, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle or shall we refrain? And he answered him, go up and succeed and the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. So Micaiah's immediate response is exactly what Ahab wants to hear. Now, Ahab and Micaiah have interchanged before, and Ahab has grown to hate him because he never tells Ahab what he wants. Ahab understands this, and this is a really important part of the context because Micaiah knows that Ahab's not going to listen because he's never listened before. So he just says, yeah, sure, you know, go ahead. It'll be great. You know, it'll be wonderful. Matter of fact, we'll have tacos when you get back. You know, <laughs> not, not really, but, you know, I mean, he, the, the, the idea is that he's just – He's like, I can just picture him taking a deep breath like, sure, go. It's just going to be wonderful. And here, what, what's Ahab's response to this? Then the king said to him, how many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? So Ahab is knowing that this is not what Micaiah really thinks. Okay, so he knows something's up. And he's demanding, you know, being the king, I'm demanding to know what God really wants wants from me, as if you're going to listen. You know, I mean, that, that, that's what it's coming across. So Micaiah then prophesies of Israel being without a leader. He says, he, he kind of paints a picture. And he talks about being without a leader, and Ahab hears this part, and he gets mad. Well, duh, of course he gets mad. He always gets mad at Micaiah. Okay, so Micaiah then tells him another story to illustrate the fact that all of Ahab's prophets are not of God. And the following verses, Jonathan, are another story. Now, some people say, well, it's, it's a true vision that Micaiah had. I don't think so. This whole account has been one of sarcasm. The prophets of Israel gave, uh, these false prophets of Israel gave Ahab a dramatic presentation of what would happen and Ahab is countering all of that with the following story. 1 Kings 22, 19-23. Micaiah said, Therefore hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the hosts of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. The Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth-Gilead? And one said this, while another said that. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. The Lord said to him, how? And he said, I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. Then he said, you are to entice him and also prevail. Go and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a deceiving spirit in the mouth of all those your prophets. And the Lord has proclaimed disaster against you. So, he tells this story about this thing going on in heaven, and, and God is like, well, gee, anybody have any ideas about what we're going to do? Look, this is just not God, okay? You know, when, when it doesn't fit the context of, of, of true godliness, you've got to say, okay, what's the purpose? And the purpose is he's telling a story to make a point. And he's basically saying, all of your prophets have lied to you. That's what he's saying. They're all lying. They're all not telling you God's way. 
And so it sounds like those who say the Bible contradicts itself, it says, see, God put the deceiving spirit into the mouths of those prophets. So he allowed them to follow their own hearts and minds is what he did. He didn't To be yes man for the king because yes. they know the king wanted to hear it. Right. Exactly, and how often did that happen in history? Just, just, a, just a sense on, on interpreting this, one of many commentaries on this that, that give you the idea that this is a story, not an actual event. Adam Clark on verse 19. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne. This is a mere parable and only tells in figurative language what was in the womb of providence, the events which were shortly to take place, the agents employed in them, and the permission on the part of God for these agents to act. Micaiah did not choose to say before this angry and impious king, thy prophets are all liars, and the devil, the father of lies, dwells in them. But he represents the whole by this parable and says the same truths in language as forcibly, but less offensive. So he's trying to get him to see the truth of the matter. So even though Micaiah was sarcastic in the beginning, the story is meant to get to Ahab to say, you're listening to a bunch of satanic untruth. Stop already. It's going to cost you your life. Because in this story he said, you know, God says, well, who's going to entice Ahab to go to f- and fall at Ramoth? So he's telling him, if you go do this, it's going to cost you your life. He told him that. So what happens? Ahab doesn't listen. And guess what happens? <laughs> oh. <laughs> he goes to battle and he dies. Unbelievable. You know, so, so did God plant this spirit of evil in these individuals? No. It was a story to illustrate that they had darkness in them, and they were, like you said, just being yes-men to the king. So this account seems odd. Why? Because it's a story. So what's our conclusion? When an account seems out of character with general scriptural narrative, find out why. Ahab was notoriously opposed to God, especially with Elijah. The story here well illustrates what Ahab, through his experiences with Elijah, could not hear in any other way. He was against God, and his pride would cost him his life. See, Micaiah knew the history of Ahab and Elijah. He knew it, and he understood that Ahab just was not going to listen. And this was his last-ditch effort to get him to hear that this, this was going to cost him his life. And it did. So the point here is when you come across a scriptural piece that looks odd, you need to examine it. Don't just say, that's odd. See, it contradicts. No, that's odd. Why? What's the character of God? Does it match the character of God? Does it match the the narrative of God? And how would it fit in? Is it symbolic? Is it prophetic? Is it real? Is it historic? What is it? If we don't exhaust all of those possibilities, Jonathan, we can't find the truth. So instead of saying, well, God made them, you know, made them lie, why don't we look at it, step back, and see what was actually happening? And the interesting thing about this story, before we, we go on to just one other quick example, is that um, a lot of times when we read Scripture, we are not going to read sarcasm because we're not expecting it. Oh, that's a good point. You know, we're expecting, thus saith the Lord. <laughs> well, you know, and everything is, is very serious and, and somber, and, and yes, it is. But realize that these are real people in real circumstances, circumstances having real reactions and responses. 
And Micaiah, when he said, sure, go to battle, it'll all be great, we're all going to party when you're done, he didn't say that, but you know what I mean. He's making a point. Just because we use sarcasm doesn't mean they couldn't. Okay, they were smart. That's a good point. <laughs> okay, they were smart. He's making a point. And we've got to be willing to understand when things like that come into play in Scripture. That's all. Let's see it as real, not as this, this, this narrow view of things. It's a real view of a lot of people over a long time with a lot of mistakes, a lot of bad judgments, but we can see God's will go through it. So, Next point, Jonathan, our final point. Does God send lies out to people to trip them up? Okay, you say, well, what? Really? Well, in the New Testament, it kind of sounds like that. Okay, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. For this reason, God will send upon them a deluding influence, so they will believe what is false, in order that they may be judged, who would not believe the truth, but took pleasure in wickedness. So that scripture says that God will send upon them a deluding influence. And you can stop and say, aha! So God is going to purposely make them go the wrong, give them the bad influence, not give them a chance. How dare he? Well, first of all, let's understand context. Okay, and we're not going to take the time because we're about out of time. But if you read verses 8 through 12, we started with verses 11 and 12. Read 8, 9, 10, and 11, 8, 8, 9, and 10. What you see is these are people who are already convinced of their own delusions, their own darkness. And God is sending this, this delusion after their own conviction. So what, 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 what's, what's the purpose of this delusion? The purpose uh, is it's a judgment upon those who have already decided to walk away from God. It's the result of their previous uh, dedication to spiritual perversion and a logical conclusion. So it's not to make them draw the wrong conclusion. It's to give them the conclusion they've already drawn by their, their actions they've already put in place. That's right. It's a judgment, and there's a difference. And when we say, well, God shouldn't do that, yes, he should. As a matter of fact, he can anytime he wants to because his judgment is always sound and clear and far above ours. So, you know, Jonathan, conclusion here on this small example. Immediate context reveals what happened before this verse. Okay. If you don't look at the context, you're not going to get the thought. So, Jonathan, as we've gone through these several contradictions today, the idea has been to say, okay, look, let's take these hard things, put them on the table, and figure out what do they really, truly mean. And once we get ourselves to that point, you can now say, okay, what, what do we do with what we're hearing and what we're seeing? So, you know, as we wrap this up, folks, let's understand the Bible is a big book that has a lot of information and it's hard to understand. It's just tough to get. However, if you apply the principles of wanting to find the truth of the Scripture, and I know that can be hard, but if you want to find it and are willing to look in a bigger way and understand the words and the context and the long-term context in relation to the plan of God, the whole thing begins to make sense. It is the inspired Word of God. And in it, 
we have the promise of a wonderful kingdom to come in the future. That's no lie. That's no contradiction. That's the will of God. So folks, the Bible does not contradict itself. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our program is subscribing to Christian Questions in iTunes or Google Play or Stitcher, whatever your favorite podcast channel is. Please rate us and review us. We would greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, we'll be talking about we are Christians, but are we unified? Hmm. Talk to you then.